Well, I read this week that it's been estimated that there have been about 100 million love songs ever written. Going all the way back to ancient times, if you take all of them combined, modern, no matter the, the genre, no matter the style, no matter the place, no matter the language, it's been estimated. I don't know how they estimated this, but 100 million love songs. In fact, if you look at any song that's on any of your playlists, I bet that a good percentage of them have something to do with love or heartbreak or um, romance or things like that. And that makes sense because if you think about songs, they're emotional and you know, love is probably one of the deepest emotions that we ever can feel. So that just kind of makes sense. But it's interesting to me with all those love songs, and I'm sure you know plenty of them, half the songs you know have some kind of relation to the concept of love, that amongst all those, there's got to be like a million different definitions of what love is. Because if you looked at all the love songs and you just decided to define love based on the love song that maybe connected with you the most or the breakup song that connected with you the most. The problem is you're going to come to a lot of different conclusions about what love is. Love. It's one of the most misunderstood words, but the problem is for us as Christians, we are commanded to love, so we need to know what it's talking about. What is love? Right? Today, the passage that we're going to look at, the direct command for the group in the church known as the husbands, right, people who are married, guys who are married, the command is that they need to love their wives. And if we're going to prepare for marriage, like we talked about last time, we said people spend all this time preparing for all these important things, but most people never spend any time preparing for marriage. The most important command for you guys in particular, the future husbands here, is that you need to love your wives. It's very important. So grab a Bible, turn open to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, even if uh, last week's sermon was mainly for you, if it was the passage about the wives, the future wives, uh, even if you're a lady here today, I think that you're going to learn a lot about what God expects for a marriage, not just what he expects from you, but what he expects for you and who you choose to marry, and furthermore, how you live one day as a married person. Because the stats are that most people get married, and we said the average American gets married, if you're a guy, around age 30, right? And that's pretty late. It's the latest it's ever been. Uh, ladies, on average, get married um, by age 28 on average. Again, that's the latest it's ever been. But the point is you spend most of your life married. That's how it is for most people, right? Uh, it's important for you to say, how do I do that? Well, the main command for wives in verse 22 as an expression of verse 18 about being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, the main command for them is to see their spot in marriage and to say, I'm going to submit my will to the will of my husband. Right? That was the main command in verse 22 for the ladies, was if you're a lady, you need to make sure and make, be really good at taking your will and saying, I'm willing to do what they want to do. But for the guys, it might even be harder. Now, most people think that the guy command is easier, but I actually think the guy command might even be a little bit harder for us. Look at verse number 25. It says, husbands, and for you, you can read this as a future husband, husbands, love your wives. Now, that's pretty easy because that sounds like common sense. If you get married, you don't get married to someone you don't love, right? That just kind of seems obvious. So that seems easy, but the problem is he doesn't say, hey, you know what? You can love and define it however you want to and just do your best to kind of like love them. He doesn't say that. Look what he says. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's the kind of love that God requires from you, young men, when you stand at the altar and you go get married one day. That's what he wants from you. For you to love the girl that you choose and who chooses you for the rest of your life, like we talked about last week, but love her like Jesus loved his church. I would argue that that is a bigger 
and a harder command for us to apply than simply to submit. We're all called to submit. Right now, you're, you're a kid. You're called to submit to your parents. I'm not saying that's not easy. Right? That is still difficult. But this is a lofty task he calls them to. Look how he describes how Christ loved the church. Then he's going to, for the rest of this passage, he's going to explain what Jesus did to love his people, to love all of us. And he says, hey, husbands, you should emulate that in the way you treat your wives. Look what he says next. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Jesus gave himself up for his church. He died on our behalf, but not just died. That was the thing he did near the end of his life, but what did he do for his whole life? He came down in the incarnation, lived a perfect, perfect, righteous life in our place, for you and for me, so that he could live righteously, so that we could have a righteous life count for us. Right? So he did all of that out of love. Then he died, that's true, out of love. Then he rose again. Then he ascended. And now he intercedes for us out of love. So Jesus sacrificed for us. Verse number 26. What was the point? It says that he might sanctify her. Sanctify means to make holy, right? So he's saying Jesus cares so much about the church and so much about us as his people, that he makes us holy. And how did he do that? Right? Well, he's about to say. He makes us holy by having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word. Here's a question. If you became a Christian, and your slate was wiped clean, and your sins were forgiven, how was that message delivered to you? How'd that happen? Well, through the word. Right? And if you're someone in Ephesus, the word, that means the gospel message. Right? Paul came into town. All these people came and shared the word. For you now, you have it contained in this book right here, right, where the apostles and prophets wrote it. So it's still from God. It's still the word of God. But think about it. You can't get saved without Bible truth. Nobody can get saved without Bible truth. You've got to understand the gospel. Where does it come from? His word. So it says Jesus loves his church so much, it's like he washes us with his word. That continues to happen. Even when you're a Christian, you still are getting washed by the word, so to speak. You come to church, and you learn things, and you read your Bible on a daily basis. And God's showing you things, and he's making you more like himself. He's sanctifying you. How? Well, through the word. So that's what he does for the church. So that, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Um, some of you object to this series, maybe in your mind. You think, well, what if I don't get married? Well, if you're a Christian, you will be married. In eternity. Do you know this? Every Christian will be married. That doesn't mean to a different person, or that doesn't mean in heaven you'll have some like special person to get married to. No, it's not what I'm saying. You will be married because if you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you will be married to Christ in that ultimate sense. Everyone. So even when we talk about, hey, there's going to be no marriage in heaven, like only sort of, like there's going to be no marriage like, where like, you know, we go on a hundred year cycle or whatever, and you know, you pick someone and then you then you reshuffle the deck and everyone picks someone. That's not how it works. Jesus said that's not how it works. Right? Nobody's getting married or being given in marriage in heaven because we'll all collectively be a part of a close relationship with Christ. Right? Not exactly the same as a marriage, but marriage itself is a picture of that. We'll see that later. But notice that he does this so that we be holy. Verse 28. Paul gets back to the husband and says, okay, in that same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. How do you take care of your body? Right? Well, if you're in pain, you fix it somehow, or you do your best, or you complain. <laughs> you do something, right? You feel for yourself. If you're hurt somehow, or your head hurts, you, you know, oh, I got a headache, and you know, then you drink some more coffee, or then you're like, really, I should drink water, or, or you know, you do things to, to help yourself. I got a cut recently on my foot. 
when I was on vacation, it was so dumb, I tripped going up the stairs. Like I was walking upstairs and I kicked this rock, right? And I was wearing flip-flops and I just fall on the ground and my whole like front of my big toe just like sliced. So it was great. Do that in Hawaii. It's really fun on the first day. So, you know, going to the beach will be really fun after that. Uh, but I was so careful about my body after that, like my toe. I was just, you know, putting Band-Aids on it and putting the Neosporin on it, just like doing everything to just take care of it. And I would, if I ever touched it on anything too hard, I would be so gentle and so careful. Why? Because it was part of my body that was injured. Right? We all treat our bodies that way when we're hurt. Paul says, treat your wife like she's your own body. Care for her like you would for yourself. Further, look what he says. He who loves him, his wife loves himself, right? So it's common sense to take care of your wife. Verse 29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So what did I do with my foot when it was cut? I was nourishing it and cherishing it and being so care- I didn't like whisper to it or anything weird, but you know, I was treating it so gingerly. Like I didn't put any shoes on after that. I was like wearing flip-flops for a couple days, so I wouldn't, you know, nothing would get in, and I was being so careful. He says that's what Jesus does with his church. You understand that he cares so much for us. He didn't just die for you and forgive your sin and say, okay, now you're on your own, figure it out. I mean, even now, God continually cherishes you as a Christian. And he nourishes you. He feeds you his word. He feeds you just your physical needs, your food, your water, your air, everything. He keeps you alive. God loves his church. And he says that's the attitude you need to bring into your marriage, guys. You need to love your wife like that. Verse 30 says, because we are members of his body, right? Just as Christ loves his body, the church. Sometimes in the New Testament, you see the word body. It's just a reference for church. Sometimes Paul just uses it for shorthand to talk about the church because it's one of his favorite analogies. He says, we're members of Christ's body. Therefore, because we're members of Christ's body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's an Old Testament quotation. That's Genesis 2.24. It's funny, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. He says, because we're members of the body of Christ, that's why marriage happens. And you think, wait a minute, no, isn't it backwards? Like marriage was first, marriage is the ultimate, like that's a thing, and like it kind of points to Jesus. No, he says the ultimate thing is that we are connected to Jesus, and marriage between husband and wife from the beginning, that's a picture of our relationship as the church with Jesus. Look at verse 32, he says it. He says, this mystery is profound, a mystery in Ephesians, right? is something that was a truth that's always existed, that God's always had in mind, that we don't figure out for a long time. That like was a mysterious thing, but now we understand it. It doesn't mean it's a mystery like you can't understand it now. The point is, this is a truth that was hidden, now it's revealed. What's the, what's the mystery? I'm saying that it, marriage, refers to Christ in the church. From the beginning, like when Adam and Eve got married, the purpose God had in that was to point forward to Jesus in the church. That's what he's saying right there. There's a lot here, even if you're not a future husband, right? I, I don't want this to just be, hey, if you're a guy, take notes, right? And if you're a lady, just, you know, kick back on this one. Um, because I think everything that's contained here is important for all Christians, but particularly for you guys. I want you to write these things down and keep these things in mind with your future wife in view. Right? And again, most of you don't know who that's going to be, right? You don't have a, you know, a profile that you can look at or a picture that you can look at, like, that's my future wife. But most of you guys are going to get married, and there is a wife that is living right now somewhere, might even be in this room, scary enough to say, um, who's going to be your wife. Right? Uh, this text gives the groundwork for what it looks like 
to be a good husband. So the first thing, from verse 25, where it says, Jesus laid down his life for his church. He sacrificed. What I want you guys to do is be sacrificial like Christ. That's point number one. Be sacrificial. If you want to prepare for marriage, right, I guess this one's true whether you're a guy or a girl, be sacrificial. But the main command to these husbands is to lay down their life for their wife. You see how this actually applies to the wives too, because being sacrificial is what's very much included in being submissive, right? You got to be sacrificial, right? Your will, not my will. That's also sacrifice. But here, he's saying emulate Jesus in some way. First Peter two twenty four says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. The whole reason you can even go to heaven and be a Christian is because someone sacrificed their life for you. If you're thinking about getting married, you need to keep that in mind. You need to think, I need to treat my spouse as Jesus treated me, sacrificially. Laying down my life if necessary. John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest kind of love. And now you might think if you're a guy, yeah, no, I'd be willing to like, you know, die for my spouse. If we ever, you know, 10 years down the road, we got little kids, you know, someone breaks into our house, oh, I'll get up in the middle of the night, I'll go fight them, I'll just go take them down, I'll shoot them, I'll, you know, if you're a bow and arrow type of person, right, you know, dead. Okay, uh, good. I'm glad you feel that way. If you didn't feel that way, you're like, oh, I'll make my wife fight. No, not a good idea. Be sacrificial. But here's the thing, that's a very surface level amount of sacrifice because it's an imaginary hero complex that you, you think of, like, I would, I would do that. If someone, you know, busted, I would, you know, you know, get these, like, hero complexes of yourself, like, then I would step up, you know, and I would be the one. Okay, here's the problem. A lot of men would do that, and a lot of you guys would think, I would do that. But in the small, mundane, everyday things, would you put your wife's needs before your own? That's the real question. Would you say, yeah, we'll eat what you want to eat, not what I want to eat? We say, yeah, I'll watch on TV what you want to watch, not what I want to watch. That sounds really dumb, right? But there will come a day where you'll be sitting there on a couch having to decide what show to watch, and you can be sacrificial or you cannot. You're going to be deciding where you're going to go for food, and you can be sacrificial or you cannot. And my point is not to necessarily get you in that mindset. I just want you thinking, if you are not a sacrificial person for your friends now, don't think that you'll be for your spouse one day. Like, there's no, like, magic thing that happens when you get married that makes you a good person, <laughs> right? This just doesn't happen. You've got to prepare for it. It takes work, even now. Like, here's my point. There's some of you that are going to take this seriously, and you're going to grow so much in your high school years that you'll be ready to be married, and you're going to be a great wife. You're going to be a great husband. There are others of you who will sit in the same chairs who will, like, kind of act like this is something for the future. You won't prepare, and your first couple years of marriage will be an absolute nightmare because you'll figure out how selfish you are. I want you to figure that out now. Be sacrificial. If you think about love, I want to do this for every point here. I just want to kind of show the difference between how the world says to love and what this says love is. Natural, selfish love says something like this. Um, You know what you need to do? Find someone who makes you happiest. Be with the person that's going to make you the happiest. That's worldly advice. Sounds like good advice. Um, They might say stuff like this. Hey, if the person you're with stops giving to you, you shouldn't be giving more than what they're giving. And if you feel like they're not giving anymore, you better just leave. That's unbiblical marriage advice. If we're talking about a marriage, 
sacrificial love says, I don't care what they're giving to me. I'm going to keep giving. I'm going to keep serving. I'm going to keep putting their needs before my own. And the problem is, for some of us, we think, okay, well, some of us guys in particular, well, the text says, wives, submit to your husbands. So that just means we're just going to do whatever I want to do in marriage. That sounds really fun. Like, that's why I want to get married. So, you know, I'll just have a group of people that just doesn't do whatever the heck I want to do. Okay? Be careful. Because this text says you're supposed to lay down your life for your wife. It's a harder thing to do. Okay. Next verse. Verse 26. Look at it. It says, that he might sanctify her. The next phase of this, Jesus is saying that he is a a sanctifier of his church. He washes us with the word. He makes us clean. He takes away our sin. So how can we say, I want to do something like that? Because the, the reality is husbands are not called to die for their wives. They're not called to die on the cross for their wives' sins. So it's not the same thing. But Paul is saying there is something similar that Husbands need to do with their wives. They need to be a sanctifying force. They need to be pushing them to be more like Christ. And they need to not do the opposite, which is what so many husbands do. They keep their wives from doing good. And they discourage their wives from obeying and serving God. So point number two is this. If you're going to prepare for marriage, be sanctifying like Christ. Be sanctifying. That means be a person who pushes others to be more holy. If you thought about that, if I asked you, hey, how sanctifying of a person are you? like your friends and, and your, your siblings and the people that are closest to you in your life, do you exert a force of sanctification in that relationship or not? Or maybe, maybe the opposite. Maybe you're the bad influence with those people. This text says, be a sanctifying person, especially you, you guys that are going to be husbands one day. Jesus said in John 17, 17, he prayed to the Father. He says, sanctify these people. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. One of the best ways that a husband can be a sanctifying influence on their wife is to constantly be talking about God's word and how to apply God's word. That's how you can sanctify your wife. That doesn't mean you know, she's necessarily going to you know, be more holy all the time every time you talk about the Bible, but that, that's how it works. right? You're washing of water with the word. You need to know the word well enough. Some of you guys think that all you need to do to get married is have enough money and like have a place to live and like then you're good to get married. Some of you need to start thinking, do I even know the Bible well enough to spiritually eat anybody? Because if you don't know the Bible well enough and if you're a person who's like, you know, I don't really care, you know, the girl in my relationship, she's really the one who's all into spiritual things, I'm not. Well, then the Bible would say you're not ready to spiritually eat her because your job is to sanctify her, not the other way around, which is weird. Isn't that kind of weird? that it doesn't tell the wives to sanctify their husbands. That doesn't mean that wives shouldn't prepare to be a sanctifying influence with their husbands. It's just, who is the command directed at? It's directed at the husbands, because I think, frankly, if you take the stats, are there more husbands out there who are Christians and their wives are getting dragged to church? Or, which the stats really are like this, more ladies who are saved who drag their husbands to church. That's more common in our world. That's always been more common, sadly. Are you a sanctifying influence? Selfish love says this. um, Be with a person who you like, right, like we talked about, and that's not necessarily all bad. Find someone who makes you happy. um, And any act of expression of love that you feel like is loving is good just as long as you mean it as loving. Sanctifying your spouse one day. That starts, I think, 
if we think about a dating relationship, um, so bring it to a high school context, right? None of you are married yet. None of you have a responsibility to sanctify your wife, right? Unless you're um, a leader and a married guy. Um, if, if you're committing any kind of sexual immorality or even getting close to that or pushing a girlfriend or a boyfriend in particular, let's talk to you guys, if you're pushing a girl to go past a level of, of, of conscience that she's not willing to go past and you're kind of pushing against that, do you understand you're not sanctifying her? In fact, you're doing the opposite. Like selfish love in our world is just, hey, do whatever expression of love that like anything sexual or anything that's out of bounds with God, doesn't matter. Just do whatever you feel like doing. If you're both comfortable, that's fine. Just do whatever you want to do. Scriptures talk about sexual immorality, right, pornea, like we talked about before, as any kind of sexual act outside of marriage. If you're pushing towards that, you're not being a sanctifying influence. It's not loving. It don't, you can't look at an act of immorality, right? Let's just go even further, right? If there's some kind of sexual immorality going on, you can't look at that and say, well, that was an act of love. It was not an act of love. That was an act of selfishness and sin, and in fact, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, if you're a person in the church that's dragging other people into sexual sin, it says that God is an avenger of these things. It means God watches all of it, he sees it, and he's going to pay you back. If you're a person dragging someone, particularly in that text, into sexual sin, God takes note of it, and he's an avenger. He's going to take action. Be sanctifying. With your relationships, do you make it easier or harder to sin? Do you make it easier or harder, just in your regular relationships, I'm not talking about dating necessarily, just any relationship, do you make it easier or harder for people to do right or to do wrong? Hebrews 3 says that we're supposed to encourage one another every day. Right? And, and those are mainly, I think, the way you can apply that is with the people around you. Who are the people that you talk to every day? Are you an encouraging person to do what's right? Encouragement doesn't just mean, hey, you know, you're precious and you have a great smile, so have a good day, right? I guess that's encouraging, but um, don't say it to me. I would not find that encouraging. I'd be like, weirdo. Uh, but encouragement, we're talking about biblical exhortation, right? Help them obey the Bible. If you're not doing that now, there's no magic sauce where you're going to officially, you know, going to do it when you get married. You're not going to do it. You're going to be probably less encouraging. All right, lots to say on that. Next part of the text says, love your wife as your own body. Nourish and cherish. Those two words, nourish and cherish, are going to give us this next point. To nerf for and, you know, pamper or to, to give what is needed, right? Like I did to my foot. I really nourished it because it was especially fragile at that time, right? And to cherish it, right, to, to value it highly. Here's how I put it. Point number three, I want you to be a sensitive provider like Christ. You guys in particular, future husbands, be a sensitive provider. Sensitive doesn't mean uh, that you are crying all the time. That's not what I mean by sensitive. By sensitive, I mean you need to be aware and knowledgeable about the needs of the people you're providing for. So like you're going to have a wife, many of you guys, and she is going to be more uh, sensitive than you are, and she's going to have needs and desires that she won't always express to you. Your job as a husband is to care for her needs and to know what her needs are, and to be the kind of sensitive provider that she needs. Natural, selfish love says stuff like this. I've heard it. I've heard husbands say this, people who are married. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what your wife feels. Um, just 
tell her what to do. Or you know what? Do what's best for you and your family. Like, don't worry about what she wants. She's wrong all the time. Right? Um, be careful about that. I, I've seen this a lot. People who are married say, well, I'm a provider. I take care of my family. You know, they, they have food. They have clothes. I'm a provider. What more do you want me to do? When the reality is like, well, how much time are you spending with your family? You know, are, are, you, a, are you a comfort to your daughter? Does your daughter have a good relationship with you? Are you training your son to do what's right? Are you a good dad? Are you a good mom? Like, like, are you really a good parent? Just because you provide, that doesn't mean that you're a good parent. It's like, start. Just because you provide for your spouse one day, guys, doesn't mean that you're a good provider. doesn't mean you're a sensitive provider. What kind of prayer is going in to your relationship with your spouse? What kind of support, what type of care, specifically for you guys, right? Because it's harder for you guys. It's harder for me, right? Who's more sensitive to the needs of others, Alexander or John? What do you think? Uh, all day long, Alexandra. So sometimes I'll say things and she'll be like, oh, I think you might have made them feel like that. I'm like, no, I didn't. They did. No, 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 no. She's like, no, I think you did. Like, she's sensitive to the needs of people, right? That's, that's just a, that's a gift, right? Um, Ladies, many of you have that gift, and you're going to provide that for your spouse. But here's the thing. Guys, you need to be aware and sensitive enough to take care of the lady that God brings in your life to be your wife, to care for her spiritually, emotionally. Ephesians is Paul to this group in Ephesus. When he wrote to Colossae, a different church, the book of Colossians, he summarized all this like this. In his uh, husbands, here's what you should do. Listen to what he says. Uh, this is Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives. And... Do not be harsh with them, period. And he moves on to the next thing. That's his short version. Don't be harsh with them. You can imagine in ancient days where you've got these guys who are significantly older than their wives, who maybe it's their second or third wife, right? Their wives die, and, you know, ladies died really young back then. That it would be easy for these guys, especially the ones that were powerful, especially the ones that were rich, to just treat their wives poorly. So he says, don't be harsh with them. Don't be harsh with them. What's the opposite of that? Be caring. Care about what they feel. 1 Peter 3, Peter says something very similar. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, a passage that every guy should memorize before they get married. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Okay, pause. That feels like kind of a joke because you know the joke from, from guys to girls? Like guys don't understand girls. Like they, like, they don't get us, right? Ladies, you know this, right? It's like, guys, they don't, they don't get you, right? And guys, it's a big, you know, joke among married men. Like, I just don't understand my wife, you know? Okay, this passage says you better do your best. Do your best. Try. Do you ever try to understand your wife? Yeah, it says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Then it says this next, very important. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Right? Don't be offended by that, ladies. It's just the truth. Not that you're all physically weaker than every guy, right? We could probably get some of you to arm wrestle some of these guys and maybe you'll win. Um, but in the relationship that you have as husband and wife, you need to understand that there will be, there's a fragility that's a good thing. It's a good thing, a gift of God. It says, husbands, treat your wives honorably. Like the idea is, it's like a, a, a weaker vessel. It's a, like a vase, right, or something precious you treat it with even if he's like it's not fragile it's valuable yeah but it's 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 good it's the most valuable thing you've got in the house right it's not you husband it's the wife right you treat her with care treat her with honor since they are heirs with you of the grace of life do you know that in a lot of ancient religions women and men were not on the same status 
right? Men were like the ones that really did the real stuff, and ladies, like, they might get dragged along. You see this with, like, um, even in India, right? If a, if a husband dies, they'll burn the wife in the fire when the husband dies at his funeral so that she can't marry anybody else, right? Um, if you didn't know that, sorry, that's news on Sunday morning. Um, Vikings had a similar thing, right? The favorite wife would die at the funeral of the husband, right? In fact, did you know that it was the Christian missionaries who went into India and who stopped that practice? It wasn't until um, missionaries uh, went in and said, hey, you guys need to stop doing this, that it actually finally stopped. Um, Anyway, that's an aside note. But he says here, they're heirs with you of the grace of life. They're not just going to heaven with you. They're inheriting the kingdom of God with you. And for a lot of guys, that would have been shocking. Like, wait, really? The the ladies are all going to get an inheritance in the kingdom? Yeah, just like you. You're on an equal playing field in God's eyes. He says, so, treat them with respect, treat them with honor, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says there are people, imagine this, there are, imagine men in the church praying for good and godly things, and God says, I'm not listening to you because you treat your wife like garbage. I'm not listening to you. Fix your relationship with your wife, and then maybe come pray to me. Peter says, your prayers can be hindered, husbands, if you're treating your wife bad way to apply this for you right now, guys, is do you treat ladies with more care than you would guys in just the way that you talk to them? Is there a politeness that you have with all the girls in your life? It doesn't matter if they're your sister. That's the easiest person to not be gentle with, right? Um, Doesn't matter if it's a girl at church. Doesn't matter if it's girls at school. Guys, do you treat them nicer and more politely than you do other guys? If you don't, you're going to be really bad at applying this passage. Be careful. The last thing from verse 31, 32 says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The word hold fast literally means this, to be glued. So like one day, you're going to stand in a church, hopefully, um, and you're going to be pronounced as husband and wife, and God says you're glued together now. You're one. He says that mystery is profound. I'm saying it has to do with Christ and the church. Jesus is glued to us. Jesus does not cast us off. Jesus is faithful. He's the most faithful husband. And when you become a husband one day, guys, you need to say, I need to treat my wife with the same faithfulness that Jesus treats me with, the same patience that he treats me with, the same I'm in this till the end attitude that Jesus has. Point number four is this. Be committed and faithful like Christ. I think that's the final way that you can apply this, guys. Be committed and faithful. And the question now would be, are you committed and a faithful person now? Are you committed to your word? Are you a loyal person some of you guys are loyal. You say things and you're going to do it. Others of you guys are not loyal and you're selfish and you weasel your way around things and you don't keep commitments and no one can trust what you say and you have a reputation as a deceptive person and you're not faithful. Okay? If you have those qualities and you bring them into a marriage, how do you think that's going to go? You think you're just going to stop being a deceiver when you get married? No, it's a perfect opportunity for your sin to creep in. Natural, selfish love says stuff like this. Um, Be in the relationship as long as it's good for you. Once the relationship's not good for you, and once you're married, and and if it's not good for you or your kids anymore, you should just just leave. Be in it only as long as it's good for you. The Bible says, no, you're you're one. You're one flesh. Be in it as long as you possibly can. There's a tendency that guys have always had, ancient and, and even now, to think if my wife ever does me wrong, 
If she ever does me wrong, I'll leave her quickly. If she ever cheats on me, I'll leave her quickly. Can I just tell you, you need to be careful with that attitude. Many of you guys have that attitude, and maybe you don't think about it, but many of you have that attitude, and it's expressed in that kind of sentimentality. I want to tell you that there's a story in the Old Testament that God tells very clearly in the book of Hosea, where Hosea was told to marry a lady who was unfaithful. She was a prostitute. And she didn't stop being a prostitute when she got married. I mean, she stopped for a little bit, but then she went right back to her old ways, and she's cheating on Hosea all the time. You got this godly prophet married to this lady. She had three kids. The first one's probably Hosea's. The second two probably aren't even Hosea's. There's some other dudes. And she goes and she sells herself back into sex slavery. And in Hosea chapter 3, God tells Hosea this. The Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. He says, I want you to go back, marry her again. And the next verse literally says, he had to go collect his stuff and buy his wife out of sex slavery. And say, no, you're, you're my wife. He didn't have to do that. He didn't, but God said, no, you have to do that. It was a picture of our redemption. I want to ask you a question, guys and, and ladies. How many times do you sin against God and he doesn't abandon you? How many times do you sin, maybe in the same thing, and you confess your sin to the Lord and you're forgiven. How many times, how many times has it been for you? Right? Over and over and over again. The picture here is you need to have that same faithfulness. Be like Christ to your wife one day. How forgiving is Jesus? How quick to forgive is he? Or does he hold out when you confess your sin? And does he, does he not give you peace for, you know, I'll, I'll let you sit in it for a couple more years. Or does the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guard your hearts and minds when you pray? Be committed and be faithful. Ultimately, what any marriage wants, I think, um, is that sense of security, right? You want to be secure in the love that you have for each other. The most satisfying relationships are ones where you know um, they've got my back no matter what. They love me no matter what, right? Those are your most secure relationships. And that's why if you have a relationship that's supposed to be secure like that, maybe between you and your parents, and it's broken in some way, and the trust is broken, and now you don't feel like they have your back, that's why that hurts the most. That's why breakups hurt really bad, because you feel like, oh man, we have each other's back, but now we don't. You understand that that's why God wants our marriages one day, guys, to be permanent. He wants it to be permanent. It's the only safe place for your wife and for you. It reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. This is about his relationship with God, but I think it's a great picture to talk and to remind us why faithfulness is so important in a loving relationship. This is Asaph about God. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards, you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's why you can have comfort in God is because he's faithful to you. Now just take that picture and say, how do I want to be faithful to my spouse? I know we went really fast. I know we got a lot to do today. We've got the True North Cup coming. But I really want to spend a couple minutes, and I want to pray right now for you guys in particular who are preparing for marriage, uh, that you be the kind of husbands God wants you to be. So let's pray right now. God, we recognize how good you are to give us life and to give us breath and everything else. We're thankful for your word and how it's so clear that we need to be loving people, 
particularly for the future husbands. I pray that you would use this sermon and just use the notes that they took, and they would be helpful guideposts for them as they pursue marriage one day. I pray that we would all step back and be amazed by the love that you have for us and your faithfulness and your forgiveness and your care for us as a church. I pray that we would not forget that, and I pray that the love that Jesus has for us would be something that motivates us all the time to be sacrificial and sanctifying and everything else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.